welcome to the CG Pro Podcast. Uh, if you like what you hear today, like and subscribe and follow us at becomecgpro.com. So today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Joy Leia. She and I have had the, uh, worked together before, had the pleasure of working with Joy. Um, we've known each other for a little while. Um, Joy is an amazing artist who's come up through the ranks in games, um, working for some big games companies, um, transitioned into the world of film um, and into straight into virtual production and uh, worked on some amazing projects like The Lion King, which we worked on together. And I will stop that there and say, Joy, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Totally, yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, is, if there's anything else you want to talk about in terms of what uh, what you worked on, I know it was a very quick intro, but... yeah. Um, yeah, so I was on games for a while, and I was pretty lucky that um, virtual production kind of started off as my pleasure in games started going down. So uh, Lion King, where, where I met you, is actually the first movie I worked on. And then from then on afterwards, I went to work on the Avatar sequels right after that. And um, then I worked on... Sorry, I'm just bringing up all the pulling up all the things. Um, I was on Rescue Rangers for a little bit with MPC. I was the CG art director at AR Wall, which did LED wall sort of technology um, developments. Um, and then I switched over to the art department side of things. So I became a member of the Art Directors Guild and worked on Samaritan. And now um, I'm on Lion King too. Cool. So, back in the world of lions. Yes. Full <laughs> circle. Life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm sure that never gets old. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's yeah. it's great to have you. I know you've done a lot of things since we worked together and worked on some really really cool stuff before that. Um, just going back to kind of your little early days. Um, are there any uh, things that inspired you to get into this? crazy industry or industries in the first place? Well, I was a huge gamer growing up, so it's one of those things where as a kid you just love something so much, but everyone tells you that you can't be a part of it or can't do it at all. I remember really liking art when I was in high school, and all of my uh, art teachers were like, well, you can't really do that as a career unless you become an art teacher like us. So when I first went to college, my uh, major was art education, and I... Right absolutely hated it and i ended up going to like what, three or four different colleges just jumping around different majors different paths um briefly into like fashion illustration and then i did um, game design for a little bit and then i pretty much ended up at the Noman school of visual effects for their um, modeling and texturing program and did that for a couple of years and went straight into games after that um I worked on a, a silly game as my first one called PlayStation All-Stars, which is basically like Smash Brothers, except for PlayStation characters. And what was really cool about that job is that um, we got a bunch of art from a bunch of other game franchises that were all built in different engines and different styles and different parameters. And we had to basically take these assets and reconfigure them or have to rebuild them completely. But it was really good opportunity for me as someone who's basically just out of school to see how a breadth of studios did things and compare and contrast. And I thought that was really lucky for me. So there's a lot, lot of variety in yeah. the very beginning. Yeah, in the very right. beginning. And yeah, then, cool. It's... Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> and then from then on, I just went up working on a bunch of different companies. Like I worked briefly in mobile games with Double Helix. Um, I worked at a couple startups which are all always all over the place, but allows you to have like a bigger part in like innovating and trying new things and throwing spaghetti against the wall until you find things. And then I ended up, my last job in games was at DICE working on the Battlefield series. So it's going from small, small indie titles to finally working on a giant franchise with a huge amount of history and huge libraries to work from. And that was a, a whole other, whole other game, I think. Um, and it also like, Jumping between all these studios just gave me the opportunity to work with a whole bunch of different game engines also. So being able to adapt between working with different processes and different workflows 
Um, I think that was really, really good for me, especially when coming from that into virtual production when everything's still kind of fresh and new and figuring things out. Yeah, it was really interesting moment in filmmaking history being on that movie and uh, it was it was welcoming in people from the games industry people from the film world people from the visual effects world three kind of fairly distinct cultures um coming together and trying to figure out how to collaborate so yeah it's really really interesting to hear about how it got going um i think a lot of our listeners um come from different backgrounds some people are probably really curious some people are already in the industry and curious to hear probably how it's going but definitely people curious about how to get into the industry in the first place and I know that's mm. something which which changes a lot over time it's definitely changed since I got into the industry mm -hmm. um, do you have any kind of thoughts on today um, say somebody wanted to break mm. into the industry in in into virtual production for example I would say if you want to do exactly what I'm doing, which is virtual production in like an art department, just open on real and start making environments, start placing cameras, seeing, try to copy shots and films or sets and films that you really like and see how they build that. Make sure to pay a lot of attention to scale. <laughs> scale is extremely important, especially if you're trying to replicate something that exists in real life. Um, but yeah, you basically, like when I was first in games, I was hired based on a portfolio. There's nothing else. I didn't need to show any degrees or or know anyone in particular. It's just they, they look at you and they look at your portfolio. And and then most game studios give you tests. And I think some virtual production places are also handing out tests to people. So if you get the opportunity to have the foot in the door of getting a test, then just do the best you can on that. Um, right. That's interesting. So virtual production companies are also doing borrowing from the games world and yeah, people test. Yeah. Right. So, um, and yeah, just make sure you, I don't know, just study lighting really closely, studying texturing, um, especially with material definition and stuff like that. It's, I think a lot of people that I see coming up that are making mistakes are making things that are easy to see but for a beginner can be hard to suss out if you know what i'm saying and just really 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 learn how to look at yourself and be your own critic when it comes to things right yeah i think it's a really a really good point it's a really important skill to develop as an individual and um also do you have any thoughts on um finding mentors you know how that's always a been an important thing for me to find mm -hmm. other people who have kind of gone down the path sometimes it's a little hard to find those people but yeah i think it it can be really hard i can't say that i've really had um a really strong mentor but that's just that just could be because basically when i was in games i never ever saw a woman who was in a higher position than i was ever. So every single role that I had, I felt like I had to be, I had to perform the best I could in that role to be representative of that. It's like you become a representative when you're the only person doing something. Um, so yeah. I know a lot of people talk about having mentors and having, being able to like look up to someone and be like, I want to be that someday. Um, but I can't say that that I've had that. Right. So it's not very helpful in the whole finding a mentor sort of thing, but um, that's just how my experience has been. Yeah, that oh, makes sense. Um, so you've, you've been more, it sounds like more responsible for forging your own path and, yeah. and growing your own strength. Mm -hmm. And I say my path is atypical because of it, but, um, but because of that, I've learned a huge breadth of things. Yeah, you've worked in multiple different industries and mm. technologies and so going back to your, your game days, it must have been amazing to be a, an avid gamer and then get to work on some of the yeah. projects. You probably, probably played the games before mm -hmm. you actually got to work on them. No, absolutely. But the thing about joining games is that you don't have time to play games anymore once you're in games yeah. pretty much. I mean, it's the same with film. You don't have as much time 
like these industries in general, especially all these passion-based industries, I'd call them, um, you tend to kind of lose all of your time and energy into it. Because even when you're not working, you're always still thinking about it. You're always still doing your art. You're still looking in the world a certain way. And you, you tend to lose time to actually enjoy things. Um, I think more so now I've been able to play games though, since um, the past couple of years that things have slowed down and being, work, being able to work from home and everything has definitely helped with time management. But then again, you never really leave your job then. You're always right. there. Yeah. You live in your office, literally. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, my um, cat is actually very shy, but he is here to support me. <laughs> very cool. Mm. Everybody needs one of those, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, talk, talking about working from home, um, seeing as you brought it up, is, uh, how has that been different in, in working from home versus working at a studio? From your experience, I ooh, it depends on. I think it really depends on what uh, what level you're at and what sort of project it is. I've really personally enjoyed working from home these past couple of years because I like the flexibility, and I feel like with being able to work from home, you can hire artists from all over the world and get all these sort of perspectives on things. And I think for especially artistic development, that is super cool and super useful and and there's i feel like there's been an onflow of creativity because of that um but when i think back to me starting on lion king and us working together and just being able to sit together and kind of overhear things that were going on overhear questions that would need to be answered and be like oh i can help with that oh well i can have a solution to that oh let me try and help you work out this problem that doesn't happen as much when you're working um from home right yeah, because you can be on Slack and someone can directly ask you a question on Slack. Um, but yeah. if they don't think to ask, they could be struggling with a problem for longer than they can. Or if you are like a mid-level artist that knows a lot, but no one's ever asking you anything, then it could be really hard to like show your worth a bit. So I think at that level, it can be difficult. That makes sense. Yeah, and probably... Um different depending on where you're at with your career mm-hmm. if you're starting out versus being a bit further on it's probably easier to be um speaking from from my own opinion i think it's probably easier being uh, a bit more uh, experienced and being yeah. able to draw on that as if you're starting yeah, out um, do you have any thoughts on how people could kind of combat that if they're new to the game and how they could kind of benefit from some of the things that we did but working in person I, hmm, I don't know. I would suggest if, as soon as in studio jobs open again, get inside a studio. Or I yeah. guess if you're a junior and you're stuck in home and everyone's still stuck at home, then just don't be shy. Just, right. I don't know, spray gun out questions to people. Just don't be afraid to contact someone if you're struggling or get on a video call. I think video calls help a lot versus messages also. Um, yeah. And you, yeah, it's just, it'd be really, really difficult if you are a junior artist at home and not wanting to reach out. I think that would probably be the hardest position to be in right now. Yeah. So, so as you said, it sounds like being more vocal, if you kind of know that that's you, that you're more on the junior side and you're working from home, just being, being more vocal and being more outgoing, trying, trying to grow that skill, which is a skill like, like any other. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, it can be hard online sometimes, though. I mean, everything can be, if with chatting especially, everything can be misinterpreted. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to be said for being in front of a person because so much communication is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And, um, we're missing a lot of that going through these, through Slack and Telegram and whatever digital channels. It's yeah. absolutely rife with uh, misinterpretation. It's important to be, be aware of that, I guess, and try and, everyone has a, I guess, a balance with Zoom and Zoom meetings and Zoom fatigue, but it does have a lot of value to actually get get your team together in person and make sure videos on. And it sounds like that's yeah. more more important than ever. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's why that's why people are trying to combat it with the metaverse sort of stuff. Um, trying to have an avatar thing going on, but I think that we'll have a long way to go. Actually, capture humans in a sense about yeah. how we interact. 
Well, seeing as you brought that uh, buzzword up, Dean, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what are your thoughts on on that, on the, the metaverse? On the metaverse. That's well, the whole thing with the metaverse is that they want uh, all objects to become NFTs and be transferable between, like in a Web3 sort of, what's the word for it? Where everything can be used by everything, like cross compatibility between all systems because things are owned by, as an asset that you could switch between this metaverse, that metaverse, all that sort of thing. Right. I, I think that has Some a very, very long way to go. I think with like um, app developments, that's gone a lot further with um, different programs being able to join on different decentralized applications and stuff like that. That's, uh, but I think is in terms of creating art assets and being able to switch that between different worlds and being able to have ownership over that um, in a decentralized way, which is, Hopefully, the where we're going, and not the Facebook metaverse, but the, um, but the real, the actual decentralized metaverse that would be interesting. I think that has a very, very long way to go, because um, you know, like all game engines essentially work the same way ish, but not yeah. quite together. You can't put like a Unity object straight into Unreal. Like you can't do a zebra sculpt and put it straight into Unity, or like you can't. It, there's there's so many hoops you have to go through for all these cross for cross compatibility for everything. Um, the way that shaders work in different networks, the way different programs can handle different loads of like texture count and poly count and everything. It, it's like there has to be an agreement of like how to do things first before you can truly have something that's a metaverse that everyone can work and grow in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, working on the standards because there's not there's not been yeah, there's not standards standard. particularly yeah. mm -hmm. and there's obviously some agreed upon standards like jpeg and png those are things that we understand fdx yeah. has been the the kind of favorite geometry yeah. swapping mechanism but now there's mm -hmm. some new new technologies which well we actually used usd to mention yeah, one that's USDs. trying to crack that problem probably mm -hmm. a little too early on the lion king <laughs> mm -hmm. oh god that's <laughs> Yeah, I remember. Uh, but it was good to try it, you know, the, having the daring yeah. to, to actually give it a go. Some you know, some, pe some people had to be on that bleeding edge. It was difficult being on it for sure, but mm -hmm. now it's kind of maturing. Um, do, you, do you guys, in, in, you know, in your experience, your work since, have you been um, exploring the, the progression of USD or some... I guess Omniverse, which is an extension of, of USD, being able to connect mm -hmm. things together in, in a, maybe a, like a metaverse kind of way, although nobody gets to say what the metaverse is. Yeah. I think that's my <laughs> take on it. <laughs> no one yeah. gets to do that. I think, I don't know, it's it's an interesting question because um, I'm currently not on the VFX side of it right now. I'm purely art department, so I don't have to worry about what happens to my assets once it leaves um, oh, cool. without the production designers viewing it and goes onto the movie side of it. Um, so I don't know how their technology is developing since then, since the, the package we had to work with. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I know a lot of companies are trying to figure out exactly that bridge between, um, between uh, Unreal or Unity and whatever post-processing, you know, these pipelines that all these big companies have, like NPC, DNAG, um, Framestore, they all have their, their pipeline that they have for posts that's very, very specific to them. And yep. being able, they're all trying to figure out what that transition is or how to make that as seamless as possible. So, yeah, it makes sense. And it's, it's emergent. It's kind of new. The, yeah. the, you know, the Omniverse is an idea. I think it's really interesting from NVIDIA trying to build on top of USD and allow, yeah. but basically a pipeline that isn't really a pipeline. It's more of a concurrent kind of flat structure where people mm -hmm. can work on things at the same time as opposed to yeah. taking something and feeding it further down the pipe. It's mm -hmm. it's sort of, to me, it, it feels like it becomes a like work version of the metaverse almost immediately in, in that sense of being able to, because I think there's different applications for the metaverse. You could be in it socially, you can be in it to uh, experience events that we would have done in the physical mm -hmm. world. You can don't do shows or conferences or yeah um, but there's also the working context for me which is i think the most practical one i feel 
uh, that it would be useful for straight away is actually working together and maybe not like um, people might imagine that everyone's well maybe Facebook imagines that everyone's going to be in a headset 24 hours a day I know that we, we know that having worked on things like the Lion King people mm -hmm. don't want to spend very long in a headset it's not comfortable <laughs> it's not uh, necessary in a lot of cases but mm -hmm. the, the underlying part of it where things actually connect together I think is really interesting in a work sense if we can become mm -hmm. more connected um, if you can connect the the bits of the process together mm -hmm. um, th things like uh, remote session sync in, in mm -hmm. Unreal being an example mm -hmm. like that's effectively hanging out in a content creation tool yeah which is kind of a metaverse like experience in mm -hmm. a way. and if you expand that and where everyone's just being going to be filming movies in a metaverse where there's already like predetermined places you can go to i can teleport over to utah and beautiful rock structures and instead of a film crew there everyone's in headsets or they're on their screens yeah and it's all decentralized that would be really cool yeah yeah it feels it feels like it's coming it feels like it's happening a bit but definitely as you said i i think a long way to go and it's a it's an interesting it's hard one of those things it's like hard to label something like virtual production or the metaverse but mm -hmm. um in in trying to i think it feels like a kind of a, a convenient label to describe an idea that and that's mm -hmm. important i think even though not, not there's a lot of misconception around metaverse and virtual production um maybe, maybe we can ask you about virtual production then as another idea um what and what that means to you well, virtual production, the way that I've been currently working on it, is making real-time environments for set scouting or building sets that wouldn't exist or even building sets that will exist. And um, one of the first uh, jobs I did on the art department side of virtual production was making sets for Samaritan, where we actually had a, a space that was our warehouse that was to scale in Unreal and trying to figure out how to configure a street that they're going to build in that set space. So just being able to have that live, it's the same as a set builder would have it, but with the um, opportunity to actually have the director go in with a headset and look around and change lighting and move buildings, make this the building or the road skinnier or wider, make this um, shop larger so we get the certain silhouette for a certain shots and be able to put a camera in there and see what that will look like and being able to make all those decisions before actually going in and making that set. That was right. really interesting to me. And that, and that is pure art department. It doesn't have to do with actually going in there and filming that. It's just yeah. all the setup. It's all traditionally like set building, but just a, right. a, a newer way to do it and with more tools. Um, so basically I, drafting, but just yeah. drafting in 3D in a real-time engine. Yeah, yeah, and be able to determine materials, determine reflections, all that stuff comes with it. So, um, and I feel like when people think about virtual production, they think about an LED wall on stage, and that's yeah. their view of virtual production. That's their only view of virtual production. And that, I'd say, is one of the rarest, most expensive cases of virtual production. Yeah. <laughs> I think that when people only think of it that way, they're not thinking wide enough. For to have an LED wall on stage of set in front of it and being doing those camera stuff can look really fancy in like a behind the scenes sort of video. But you're extremely limited on your lighting choices, you're ex extremely limited on your set size, um, you're extremely limited on costs. It it can be really, really, really expensive to run that. Um, but there's so many things about virtual production that are not expensive. Figuring out sets, figuring out cameras, figuring out lighting, like all of that stuff can be done at home and and not without a crew out there trying to catch a sunset every night. So mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so you, what you were describing as being kind of tech viz essentially where you're prevising a, a physical build of yes. a shoot. Yeah. Uh, which really helps streamline the process for creating it and also makes it really iterable and yeah, you don't have to do that iteration with physical mm -hmm. expensive things. You can do it virtually, make all your decisions mm -hmm. and then just basically render it into real life once mm -hmm. you're done. Yeah. So there's a lot, lot less kind of discovery once, you, mm -hmm. once you've done it. Um, 
once you're building it on on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, sounds like what you're saying the 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 other sides to virtual production is you know, demystifying it and and making people uh, more aware that it's something that everybody can use. Everybody yeah, can do themselves. Mm-hmm. You don't need a uh, studio, a company, uh, a big space, lots yeah. of equipment. Something you yeah. actually do as an individual. Yeah, you can. Um, well, that's what we did in the Unreal Fellowship. Is we we built little sets, built little stories. We put a camera in there. We ran out the cameras, edited it, all that stuff in Unreal, and making making our own films. It's it's filmmaking, and you could just do that. I mean, the Unreal Marketplace is so much so much free stuff and more free yeah. stuff every single month. They could just take it all <laughs> and keep it all and make your own giant library over time and build stuff. Like you don't even have to make assets from scratch anymore at this point. Well, uh, for things specifically, or if you're trying to match something specifically, yes, you do. But for the most part, if you just want to mess around with it and play with it and build sets, it's all already there for you. Right. Which, which is great. I you know we have a lot of students that come through the school that come from the filmmaking side that don't have the 3D background. And it's amazing that they can leverage pre-built things. They don't have to learn how to 3D model necessarily to be able to rough a set, even to just sketch an idea and potentially mm-hmm. even take it a lot further than that. So it's, 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 yeah, my experience has definitely shortened the period of time that people need to, to learn, to people need to train to be able to be useful. And we're seeing DPs and uh, directors jumping on the box mm-hmm. and within a few weeks with a fellowship kind of length of, a, of an experience be able to be be useful and be you know get value out of it and not take two years to learn Maya like mm-hmm. several weeks to learn Unreal and still find it really useful for their process. Mm-hmm. Yeah uh, I saw a question about specifically bashing marketplace kits together. Oh, um, sure. yeah. yeah well one thing you really have to watch out for is scale of everything. Because um, Marketplace sometimes does a good job where um, people tend to build things for real-world scale, um, where you can place a human right and everything makes sense. But not everything, and sometimes things get really, really wonky. And sometimes stylized sets are sets of a little bit of stylization, where things are a little bit thicker, a little bit taller, look really realistic when you're seeing them all together as a set. But when you're placing the next to other objects, if we're combining kits, then it can look a little rough. Um, what I would learn if you're doing um, marketplace sort of bashing, I would just learn to be really, really critical of everything you're looking at and learn shaders really well. Because all these kits will usually come with their own master shader of the way they're setting up their shaders. And sometimes it has a metallic map, sometimes it's a spec map. Um, sometimes things are done correctly, some things are done in the stylized sort of way, sometimes things have a mist of glows all over them, and you should be able to know how to suss it out and turn things on and off, and you're looking at two rocks from two different kits together and see how they're looking slightly different, you should be able to dig into the shaders and find out why that is. I think that's really, really important. So extending your skills beyond kit bashing, actually learning how the, the engine works being mm-hmm. able to tailor those assets even yeah. if you're just nudging them into shape yeah but, but you can learn a ton by downloading these things and digging into like really complex shaders and going down another level down a level level how does this material function work oh what is this calling for oh you should go look at this note oh just look it up in the um the help guide and see what exactly that does and they'll usually show examples and try playing around with all the sliders and see exactly what everything it does um, make sure to turn off your lighting um, and see how everything looks and diffuse and see if those colors and saturation values are coming together and not being tricked by some weird spec somewhere. Um, definitely, that's a really good tip is when you're looking at things and you're seeing something wrong, go through all the channels of being like, okay, how does this look with diffuse lighting only? How does this look like a full normal max on? Oh, that's where the problem is. Okay, where can I find that? Um, right. A lot of this is problem solving. And it can be really fun, I think. Yeah. I find fun, a lot of fun doing that sort of thing. I'm trying to figure out why things are wrong and how to fix them. I, I feel the same way, <laughs> basically. Um, I, I feel it's somewhat similar on the aesthetic side and the technical side, because they're both, they're both problem solving. The aesthetic side, you're problem solving the visual. 
and trying to figure out how is that working, how how is it working, how it's not, and mm -hmm. how do you fix that? And same on the technical side, you're problem solving in a different way, and mm -hmm. both are both very creative, I think, in that sense. Mm. Um, we had a, another question that came in. Um, I'm just having a look here. So, um, yeah, somebody asked, what what programs do you use in in the virtual art department? Um, what, what does the job kind of look like? Yeah, currently I'm doing stuff in Unreal. I have worked on um, departments using Unity as well. Um, usually it's Maya with um, Substance Painter, ZBrush sometimes. And that sort of pipeline where if you make an asset from scratch, you model the Maya, do a high-res sculpt in ZBrush, um, take them both in the Substance Painter and bake high to low, um, and then texture it all in Substance Painter and spit out the the Substance Painter has like a automated Unreal spit out, so you get your your um, textures in there and plug it into Unreal. Um, we do have our set of master shaders in our current project, so if you are starting a new project, I would set up your master shaders for different things that you would need, like different transparency emissive, or um, we have like camera facing cards and stuff like that. So, right. Yeah. So build build yourself a little toolkit before you yeah, get exactly. going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good advice. Um, any, any see any blender coming in uh not personally i i'm interested in it um but the thing is i i know maya really 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 well um yeah. because that's what i've used my entire career and that's what we majority mostly learned in school so i think it depends on what program you grow up with or learn with it's gonna be how your handwriting is i know all my my finger positions and Maya and all my little hotkeys and everything. I know how to exactly do everything. So being able to switch that in your brain to a different program, it was hard enough to go from Maya to ZBrush and back and forth and being able to switch yeah. your brain. Um, so I don't want to, <laughs> I need to learn Blender because everyone's using Blender, but uh, I have not found the time to do that yet. <laughs> yeah, it definitely takes, I'm, I'm going through the same thing, I've been trying to chip away at it for a while and converting the workflow to, it definitely takes time when, like you yeah. said, you've got your muscle memory kind of bound into a certain mm -hmm. tool. Um, I was just curious because I, I see a lot more use of Blender these days, and I'm, yeah, uh, the, I guess the big question's been around like Blender's uh, been a hobbyist tool pr primarily for a long time, and now mm -hmm. it's being taken quite seriously. And I see studios starting to allow the use of it, then maybe feeding mm -hmm. the result of it back into the pipeline. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was just curious if like if you're seeing people around you in the world of virtual production being able being able to use blender as an option or if it's like yeah, i mean whatever you, really model, uh, if you need to model something then use a modeling program i, I don't think it matters which modeling program uses use, as long as you get an fbx out of it so um yeah. some people in like the 2d side of our departments have been using blender just to set up shots get a quick perspective for a paint over quick lighting that sort of thing yeah. so and i think it i think more and more guys in our department are are diving into those packages when they haven't done 3D before, so. Right, so it's one to watch, but uh, definitely still, and I guess some pipelines will kind of push you into that way of, the Maya way of working if their tools are built around Maya. Yeah, this is, yeah. so this is a specific pipeline, I think especially in VFX, when you're on a, a large company and everything is built to Maya. Like when I was at Lightstorm, everything was done in Maya because it's all linked up to Weta's gazebo system, their own world type right. system. So you couldn't really not work in Maya at all. So yeah. yeah, it's a really it's an interesting question for me because I see a lot of people coming in to the industry, new people coming into the industry, and obviously the old the old guard has been all Maya, and now mm -hmm. it's starting to change a little bit. Pe people really often ask that question, what what mm. tools should I learn? What software should I learn? Should I learn Maya? Should I learn Blender? And my, my answer to that has always been, go ask the people that are doing the work, find out what they're using, and then go learn that. And that's, that's how mm. I started with my visual mm -hmm. effects career. So I realized I had to learn Maya because at that point, everybody was using it. And now it's like evolving a bit and there's a bit more choice of using the tool that you're comfortable with, pipeline dependent. I think it's really, it's just really interesting time that some of these tools, especially free tools that are free to use, yeah. also free to use to learn on, it really helps mm -hmm. people be No, absolutely, it makes it more available to everyone, like 
Blender and Unreal, and we just be able to dive right in without paying a cent, really. I mean, you need a computer, also, obviously, and that yeah. can be the biggest cost. Um, and a lot of people don't have access to that, so I shouldn't say it's free, but it, it is, it helps a hurdle. Um, but yeah, I would say on my current job, it wouldn't matter if I was using Blender. Because right. we don't exchange things in Maya at all. It all goes through Unreal anyway. So whatever can get you to Unreal then. Right. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That's really, really useful to hear that. I think as mm -hmm. people are trying to figure out, you know, it's a lot to, as you said, learn another program. If, you've yeah. used to, if you're used to Blender, um, it sounds like, and you know that really well, it sounds like there is a, an opportunity to jump in without okay. necessarily having to learn Maya. Maybe, maybe a little different in a visual effects. Pipeline. Yeah, I think for a visual effects company, you probably still have to learn Maya. But since I am not part of the VFX company anymore, then it's just doing the art side of it. Um, right. Yeah, I saw a question asking if I was part of the VAD or the standard art department on Samaritan. It was the art department. They didn't have a separate VAD. So it's all under the production designer, that one. Right. For, that was for Samaritan. Yeah, that was for Samaritan. I saw the question pop through. Um, and then uh, another question about scale. Um, do I ever scale purchase objects? Yeah, I mean, I've changed. It's not just about like this chair can be bigger or smaller. It's about how the joints are in relation to each other, in relation to a hand. Like I fixed a lot of marketplace assets before that seem like they're the right size, but it's, it's definitely has to do with like thicknesses and relationships and being able to see how that is realistic or not. Um, a lot of building kits have to have, have like really cool storefronts, but all the beams are a little bit too wide and the wood is wider than it would be in real life. So you can kind of tell that something's off. Um, it looks not realistic in that sort of sense. So I would definitely take assets. You could put them, there's measuring tools in Unreal you can get and measure things and see how that actually measures up with something next to you. you take a carry a tape measure around, measure a brick if you're doing a brick wall. Uh, I think especially bricks can really determine scale in any sort of scene. Just measure a brick and make sure your bricks are the right size. It, it's stuff yeah. like that. Um, and once all that, fits together, you can make something that feels really cohesive and it's very satisfying. Right. And how, how do you adjust them if you've got downloaded something from the marketplace? How, how do you uh, go I'll bring it to Maya. <laughs> Export right. it out, bring it to Maya. You get all your, your LEDs and everything um, too. So you can kind of adjust everything so it all kind of fits together. Um, right. So you can bring, bring an FDX out, make some adjustments. Yeah fire it back into Unreal, yeah. replace replace it, re-import it, whatever. Yeah, re-import yeah. it and then replace everything. Cool. Unreal is yeah. really like that. We just like replace, it's not a find and replace, it's just on a magnet, it just like places it all in there, which is really great, so. Very cool. Um, somebody's asking if you're a modeler and you want to become part of the virtual art department, what new skills should you focus on? Mm, uh, just learn how to get things in and out of game engines. Um, if you're a modeler, if you're a VFX modeling house or modeling, if you're modeling for VFX house and you're doing the super high res final frame sort of thing, just, um, learn how to bake things down really well. Um, people like when Unreal 5, um, becomes a thing that everyone uses, people are not going to care so much about UDIMs and everything like that. But for now, I would try to put all your textures on a single map. Um, learn about how to separate your different like red, green, blue channels to be able to use that for the roughness, metallic, um, spec maps, stuff like that. And really learn how to squish things down to a format that uses as little texture space as possible. Right. So um, you so can look at, I would look at guides for making game assets, like really old school guides for making um, uh, like making game kits. Um, you can search for them outside, like how to make a, what was the word for it? Like a kit of parts that you could build a game level out of, where someone takes a one, like 1K texture and is able to um, pull out enough textures for like 10 different walls by using different strips that can tile a certain way. 
and being able to use their normal maps a certain way or, or displace the maps a certain way in order to get a whole bunch of different results from the same thing. Going back, back in time to actually learn how they did it back then will help you a lot when figuring out how to make a model efficient. It's like learning how to do it a really, really hard way in order to do it the easier way now, because it is easier now than it was back then. But I think a lot of that knowledge is super useful for people to know now. Right. So essentially, you're talking about optimization. Optimization. Yeah. yeah. Learn optimization, learn how to bake things down, learn how to lay out a UV map properly. Um, I'm sure a lot of that is known, known things, but um, like when really I helpful I think it's very helpful to, for you yeah. to go through it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like when I've gotten VFX assets and had to bring them down to a game engine, those are the steps I go through. They have it all laid out in this giant UDIM, put it down in one map, duplicate things that don't need to be, that, like it's like wings on an airplane, you just need one of them. So you got rid of the other one, make sure it's using the same texture map. It's, it's stuff like that. Being able to conserve texture space is a huge one and conserve geometry. Right, being efficient. And um, it's interesting that you brought uh, Unreal 5 up because I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think that there's a lot of perception out there that it's going to get rid of all of that, the need to do all of that work. Um, what's your, your take on that? I don't think so. Know, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's hard to believe. I played with it a little bit. Um, uh, so I have the demo and I've played it for maybe four hours tops yeah. and I made it crash a couple times by playing just seeing how much geometry I could load into it. Um, it. Yeah. <laughs> um I I think like the thing about Unreal 5 is that to say that it is exactly what it says that you can bring in all this geometry, all of the geometry, and you can bring in all the texture space, and you can bring in all the lighting, it's still not gonna take away the art part of it. Like you're still gonna have to learn scale. You're still gonna have to learn shaders. You can bring in all the texture space you want, but if your metallic value is wrong, it's still not gonna be wrong. If you don't know how to make a diffuse map that works correctly with the lighting, the lighting could be perfect, but if your shader maps aren't working correctly, it's not gonna look perfect. So I would say um, it's fine for if I don't have to make assets optimize anymore. I don't have to worry about making that a, a director won't get sick when it's a VR headset anymore if I put in too much geometry. But I think art is still really, really important and that will never change. Right. So the, the fundamentals are, are yeah. going to be exactly the same, but the mm -hmm. process will change a little bit. And yeah. it sounded like you feel, I, I feel this way too, I, even though that you can throw your ZBrush sculpts straight in the engine, technically, um, does that mean that you should, if you're going to end up with huge amounts of on disk? It's like oh yeah, on disk especially. I think that's the problem they're having that now with all the yeah. demos that are doing on Unreal 5 and all the companies that are that are trying to build a game or build a cute little video, that sort of thing, um, is that I mean, 8K textures, 6, 16K textures, passing that back and forth of everyone working from home, that's something that's going to have to get a lot better. Right. Um, all that memory is the bandwidth. Is a lot. Yeah, the bandwidth problem yeah. and the storage problem is not yeah. maybe a memory problem so much anymore, but mm -hmm. those other things, it's pushed it into another area. So yeah, it seems like, uh, and I feel this way too, like optimization isn't something that you should just ignore. And we go through this in the school uh, a bunch, you know, should, not something you should ignore because Unreal mm -hmm. 5 is going to take that, that all that half of the job away from you. Um, it's still important to know about it and, and we will see, I guess, how it evolves as Unreal 5 gets used more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, really, <clears throat> it's really interesting to, to me to discuss the kind of the future of where the stuff's going because we're in this big point of transition where some of these mm -hmm. new technologies <clears throat> that are emerging <clears throat> in real time, things we haven't had before, like ray tracing and huge amounts of geometry and um, real time dynamic uh, indirect lighting and those kinds yeah. of things. That, I remember yeah, for my first couple games, I had to cut in the shadows into the geometry for the background <laughs> <laughs> and do yeah, um, so the vertex in. point shading. What? 
you have to model model them in model yes model them in yeah yeah, yeah. and then color over vertex points because i couldn't afford a texture space so i had to actually color the vertexes um that was blue point engine wow <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's exciting to be able to get rid of some of it to me <clears throat> and things like uv mapping and optimization and that kind of stuff is you want to focus on the art more and i think some of yeah. those tools are helping us to be able to focus on the art more but mm -hmm. still it seems like for the next at least the next while it will be important to keep um to keep focusing on optimization and and keep uh that so that going back to the person's question about the skills to learn trying to get into this world it sounds like that's still a very important thing i think it is mm -hmm. and i think like the more for, for learning that sort of thing, like learning optimization or learning how levels are built or sets are built or anything, just you, you can take, you can learn so much by just taking other people's work or other people's levels or marketplace sets. There's tons of them available online. They're not even just the marketplace ones. You'll look for people's Unreal projects, take them, pull them apart, see how they do things, see how things look together, see where they put up cameras, see how they do their lighting and uh, especially if you do that with game levels where people are actually running like a real-time game through it and seeing how they're setting up their spawn points and run cycles and and things like that um that's all really 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 useful and i think especially as virtual productions moving forward a lot of that knowledge um how things used to be done um right should be incorporated in. i feel like sometimes vfx houses approach virtual production in a game engine um, as trying to jam it into their pipeline. Like we do things mm. a certain way. So we need to fit our way of doing things into this thing that's not how we do things at all. Right. And I think that is the wrong approach. Game studios have been doing beautiful work for for decades, decades. All the game trailers um, that you see coming out every year, they're all in engine and beautiful and look like stunning. And when people are making like real-time environments and doing little trailers um, that are for movie production, they're still not looking at what game trailers have already done and what game artists have already done. I, I think there's a huge disconnect there. It's like, oh, we were able to do this without looking at what other people have been able to do just because it's a different industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So pay attention to the, yes. the, the pedigree that comes from games. And that was definitely... That was clear on, on Lion King when we, you know, our, our worlds collided. You come, coming from mm. games, me coming from film visual effects. And mm. there was so much that we had to learn from you guys coming in from games. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We've already gone, gone down this road. <clears throat> and the same the other way around. And, and being able to, to it, was, it was a really cool experience being able to bring those two things together and trying to get them to, to, to meld together, I guess, is the challenge. How do you get those two cultures to, to blend together and work together and look for the value in each other and mm -hmm. yeah sometimes it could be a little bit of a fight but uh <laughs> when you when you when it does work it's quite a yeah a as long as you're willing to learn from each other i mean games have a lot to learn from like film as well as the cinematography wise mm -hmm. or the way they build sets a certain way um framing things for a certain angle of camera versus games right that make everything that's sort of thing so um it's a Another question I can see come in that um, is in, in what ways does the virtual art department collaborate with the camera department compared to how it works in traditional production? The camera department, I don't personally work with the camera department. I did a little bit at Lightstorm when we were building our set for virtual cameras there because that was through um, um, James Cameron developed his system for looking at things in a virtual camera where he has his cameraman um, being able to, he basically has cameramen all set up around a virtual set where it's a whole bunch of green screen volumes that people were mo-capped on. And instead of VR goggles, which he hated, he had a bunch of screens mm. and watched all the camera stuff from that way. And that's the only, right. that's the only interaction I personally have with camera departments. I guess there was a bit on Lion King too, in being in the VAD, we were slightly more connected to stage oh more, yeah yeah slightly more than maybe the art department even they the art department there was relatively connected to the stage too but it had to go through us to go <clears throat> to make it run mm -hmm. on stage uh, it's, it's interesting maybe um do, do you guys get involved in the 
in the scouts directly, or are you more kind of feeding the stuff through to the scout? Um, yeah, people that are not, because I'm working from home, there are people on stage that are part of our team that are involved with the scouts directly, right. that are able there to troubleshoot or help with lighting, um, help with help with moving rocks around for certain things. That's That sort of thing is usually the help that comes with scouts, but everything's kind of predetermined when we send things off. We have like, we send them off with little kits of like, rocks and plants and things in the area that they need to move around, um, different lighting conditions they can play with. So, um, yep. I am an 800 uh, senior illustrator, that last question. Okay, cool. 800, <laughs> art director, 800, right. under the art director's guild. Um, cool, so. yeah, it's interesting to know how, um, how these various departments are fitting together and there's sometimes mm -hmm. as we were saying the the virtual art department on the Lion King was with the vendor it was with yes. NPC and then there was also the art department and we worked together to feed things through to stage and in some cases it sounds like that's not the case in your case the art department is the virtual art department it's all yes. one thing which makes sense mm -hmm. probably a lot a lot smoother that way and I think like even a lot of art departments now are having, even if there is a separate a virtual art department that is under a vendor, they do have their own people in the art department under the production designer. So that can be that bridge or even right. like what I did for Samaritan where we didn't, they didn't have a virtual art department at all. It was just us trying to build a set. So um, there's, I think there's a lot of room in art departments um, for virtual art department people. Um, do you do you have a sense of what they would be called if they're on the art department side? Are they still called a virtual art department? Are they called the art department? Is there any kind of conversation about like what it should be called? I really just like to be called the art department. <laughs> just be another <laughs> yeah. real artist in the art department, uh, personally. Um, right. I think what it, it transitions into virtual art department when you're actually scouting and shooting in it. So there are plenty of projects where you don't scout and shoot in a virtual world, but they still build things virtually, so. Okay. Um, another question I had, seeing as you <clears throat> mentioned earlier on the um, the fellowship experience, can you mm. tell us briefly what uh, what that was like? What it was like to it's really really intense. It was really intense because I was I was moving to uh, London at the time at the same time I was doing the fellowship, um, but it was I think it was really interesting because a lot of people it was a huge range of people in our fellowship. And as people that were directors or cinematographers or people that were heavily into VFX or VFX soups. Um, and I was coming as a person that worked a little bit in film but had a ton of game experience. So I already knew um, game engines and Unreal really well. So a lot of the classes were a mix of teaching Unreal and all the basics of like how assets are set up and how to organize things and how to bring things in. And a lot of it was also camera work and bringing in animations and um, things on how to build a film inside of Unreal, which I thought was really interesting. It was an interesting approach because I think virtual production is a huge wide range of things under the virtual production umbrella. And what they did with the fellowship is it is basically a filmmaking in virtual production fellowship because it's like, it's like, what's the term, like soup to nuts, like the, the beginning to end of making a film and how to make your film independently. And this is the wide range of things you need to know in order to get the film. Um, so for me, I was really uncomfortable with animation <laughs> in general and being able to take mocap and blend things together. And um, that was a real struggle. And that was a lot of the project. <laughs> Um, but there's some guys in uh, the program that are coming from a mocap world. So that was perfect for them. They just had to learn how to use Unreal, learn how to light things, um, and learn how to build uh, environments. So it was really interesting. Everyone got something out of it, I think. Right. And it was quite short in a way. It was uh, only five or six weeks um, for you. What was what was your experience of being able to you know, watch? I know you probably knew Unreal a little bit going into it, but for for other people, going coming from zero to 
uh, going through five weeks worth of training. Mm. Um, what do you what did you see from from people picking it up from scratch? I guess. I think I know. I had I had ten years of experience of Unreal before going in, um, yeah. and so I I think. I think it was way more intense for them because it is a huge download of information. Um, if you don't know how assets are set up or if you don't know what, and some things you don't really need to know for specific projects, but it is a lot of info. It is a lot. I think there is a huge learning curve for it. Um, there is and there isn't. It's a small learning curve in order to just get started and build something. But it's a huge learning curve for making, for knowing how to fix things, I think. Being able to right. get under the engine and find out why things are the way they are. Um, and it's just the intensity of classes. I mean, it was, oh, I had my old schedule for it somewhere. I think it was like six hours a day or something. Some of them were like labs where you just sit in there and ask questions. But it was like early in the morning, get up three hours of classes, do this homework for the class, start to work on your little short film. Uh, <laughs> so I can imagine if I didn't know Unreal at all, that that would be really overwhelming. Right. And it's really fast, so. But, some, but people did go into it with no experience. In yeah, absolutely. Short film. Yeah. That's, it's comparing that to say, if it, where people did previous before and maybe maybe some game engines but mostly kind of doing it in Maya and mm. Motion Builder um, which to, would take take a lot longer to learn how to do anything in those environments. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at least Unreal, if you play games at all, it's WASD to move around and that's pretty intuitive and drag and drop for a lot of the assets which is not Maya at all. <laughs> yeah, every, every vertex, you have to fight for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, another quick question um, for a director preparing to collaborate with a virtual art department lead. What advice would you offer in terms of how a director could be best prepared? Um, hmm, for a director, if you're not um, used to seeing things in virtual production, just uh, be really communicative. I mean, your lead should tell you what can and cannot be changed um, as far as your expectations when you're looking at a set. because. Sometimes when a director is looking at a set in virtual production, they'd be like, wow, this room is way too small. It's all ruined. We can't shoot anything in here. But that's actually really, really, it's, it's a stupid example, but that's a super easy thing to fix. And some things that could be things that would be really difficult to change in the real world are like nothing, nothing in a virtual production world. And so they should be really open with you if we can and can't be fixed. Um, and yeah, just keep an open mind. If you uh, get dizzy in the VR headset, make sure and tell them because <laughs> they could probably Take fix it. it. <laughs> Take it off. <laughs> um, make sure that you have a good lighter because lighting can change a lot, uh, a yeah. lot of your experience in there. And um, yeah, don't give any other advice. Uh, right, so yeah, good communication. Good communication being prepared, ex exploring what is capable of yourself a bit, mm -hmm. having a good lighter, that was really, some really great advice there, how to, mm -hmm. how to get ready for shoots. But mm -hmm. in general, it sounds like just get, get some knowledge, get, get just enough knowledge if you're a director of, of how it works. Don't just rely on all, all uh, completely on somebody telling you how it works. Like, mm -hmm. it sounds like it'd be quite empowering to, to learn as a director, actually learn a bit about the engine, learn a bit about the workflow, and um, mm -hmm. that, that could be quite empowering for them. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, I don't know if this is another question that's coming in. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I think we, we have got to the hour, so I, I just wanted to say thank you very much, Joy, for it's being for here with us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for joining us and sharing all of that great uh, information and experience, your experience in this area. Um, is there anywhere that people can find out more about you or follow your work? Or no, <laughs> I don't really post anything. Um, uh, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, probably. I I check it 
once every couple weeks. <laughs> and it's usually how people contact me if they need to for like job sort of things. Yeah. Um, but that's about it. <laughs> cool. Yeah, no, so I know I'm terrible with sharing things on Instagram or ArtStation personally if uh, mm. my, reel, my reel needs updating as well. So yeah, no, it's all good. Just uh, if you had any stuff to show off, then we can, we can share it with the- <laughs> Someday with the I'll get on that whole sharing things. <laughs> I keep saying that too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us, um, Joy. Um, we had a great session here today. Uh, thanks to all our listeners for being here and um, engaging and asking great questions. Um, we were here with Joy Lev from uh, the virtual art department, or the art department, I should say, um, talking about art department and virtual production. Um, for CG Pro, you can follow us on our YouTube channel, Become CG Pro, our website, becomecgpro.com. We have a free Facebook community that is uh, becoming a CG Pro on Facebook. Um, our next podcast is William Fauché in uh, two weeks' time, so look forward to that. I'm definitely looking forward to that one as well. And, um, yeah, thank you all very much for being here. Thanks.